0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 15th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you to join us on November 22nd here in New York City for Commentary's 11th annual roast. Uh, This year's roast is of Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, our our Jewish commentary columnist, one of the great uh, minds, uh, religious, political, moral, theoretical, Princeton PhD, rabbi of the oldest uh, Jewish uh, congregation in the United States, um, 43 years old, annoyingly prodigious, and deserves to get taken down some pegs. And we are going to do that this year at our roast. This is not a cheap date. Uh, costs a lot of money to come to the roast, as you'll see if you go to. Uh, commentary.org slash roast21. You can see uh, how you can get a ticket or buy a table for eight or ten people to come join you. But it is tax-deductible, everything but the cost of the meal that we will be serving you at the very ritzy hotel that we are going to have this event at. It is funny. It is lively. It is exciting. Uh, Hundreds of people together uh, joining uh, in community with commentary, this institution that you think enough of uh, to listen to us uh, blather uh, on a daily basis. And I really, really, really think you will enjoy yourself. If you haven't been, and if you have been, what uh, what is the matter with you? Go to commentary.org slash roast21 and get yourself a ticket or a table. You know how much you love this event when when we were roasting Jonah Goldberg or Ben Shapiro or Dick Cheney or Charles Krauthammer or Midge Dector or Norman Podhoretz or Roger Hertog or Dan Senor. Um, and I'm I'm missing a couple of people. Uh, Joe Lieberman. Uh, so uh the this is really a once a once a year, a, now it's once in two year event uh, that you shouldn't miss. Commentary.org slash roast twenty-one or email us at roast at commentary.org. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. See, I mixed it up again. I mixed it up again. I'm not. I'm trying to keep everybody, you know, like lively and on on their toes. And uh, we have an exciting show today because we have absolutely no idea what we're going to talk about. We were talking about what to talk about. We don't know what to talk about. We were throwing some ideas out. So uh, uh, Dave Chappelle. So Dave Chappelle d- does a does his fourth special. On Netflix, the guy is getting paid more money for these specials than anyone has ever been paid in commentary before a com- <laughs> comedy <laughs> before for anything. Certainly, any more than anyone in commentary has ever been paid. Uh, and this uh, fourth special, uh, at, like his previous specials, uh, takes aim uh, at, at, at political correctness in, in different ways and is now coming under fire by trans activists, people. Uh, th- people sort of storming uh, in meetings at Netflix to complain that Netflix is doing this at Netflix. And now the uh, anti-comedian Hannah Gadsby, whose uh, famous special Nanette uh, was all about how we shouldn't laugh at anything anymore because life is too horrible and people get raped and she has an eating disorder. And I don't know what the hell else she blathered about for an hour. Um, Hannah Gadsby has now attacked Ted Sarandos, the creative head of Netflix, saying, you know, like, I didn't take all this money from you in order to, you know, be, you know, part of your evil, you know, um, because, of course, Hannah Gadsby believes, like most progressives now, that um, nobody should say anything she doesn't like uh, to hear being said. So, Abe, you wanted to talk about Dave Chappelle, so please...
1: Well, there's a couple of interesting things about it. First of all, I, I watched the special. I thought it was subpar. Um, he's, so he's, did I. He's obviously an extraordinary talent and a genius. And watching anyone do anything with that level of skill, even if it's not their 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 greatest showing, um, is always at least interesting. And there were some funny lines. But I I, the truth is I barely remember them. So um, I think that's an indication of uh, his, his having been slightly off his game. Um, One of the refreshing things about this is that Netflix seems to be completely sticking by him. Um, And uh, it's sad that that's refreshing because we are used to corporations and parties involved in uh, these kind of cancellation campaigns collapsing immediately to try to save their hides. Um, And I think Netflix will do just fine standing by him. Uh, because they're Netflix, and 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 people aren't going to give up their their you know their 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 home viewing pleasure uh, of, of, on the basis of uh, woke ideals. One of the things that I think is most interesting about this, however, is that he made uh, he was running with this 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 ongoing bit in his act. I think he referenced it twice. This this concept of uh, he, had, he says he had a movie idea called Space Jews. Uh, and the first time round, he referenced it. Uh, he was talking about uh, how it's uh, it's a it's a sci fi. There's a sci fi movie about uh, people who lived on the Earth before we did. Then they left the Earth. Now they want to come back and take and take their their home again. And then the punchline was, I call that space Jews. Uh, and then there was a joke later on where he was talking about, he doesn't understand how people who are victimized can then turn around and victimize other people. And once again, he goes, yeah, that's also called space Jews. Um, fine, well, I don't think it's particularly funny. I don't think it's, it's in part, it's not funny because it's not accurate. And I think there needs to be some uh, basis of truth at the, at the, for a joke to land properly. Um, but in all the attacks on Chappelle's act, no one is bringing up the space Jews bit. Of course, there's silence on that. And I think the silence is interesting because liberal Jews won't be offended. The only people who would complain about it
0: would be Jews and liberal Jews. Well, progressive Jews, let's say anti anti post or anti Zionist Jews, because, it's of course, an anti Zionist joke. It's like Jews left Jews left the homeland and then they decided to come back and they just took it as though that's actually the story of the Jewish expulsion uh, from, you know, uh right. from the land of Israel, which was uh which was an expulsion uh you know in in the second century yes uh AD uh or as some of us it the first century, excuse me the first century CE or right. AD and you know and like like 190 years later. Yes. Yes right. anyway <laughs> but, and America.
2: Um,
1: yes right right so but the but the silence so you're you're correct. So uh progressive Jews um wouldn't complain because they would they would be in sympathy with the with the sentiment of the bit. Um conservative or Zionist Jews um who would be offended by it aren't going to complain because they don't want to be part of the cancel culture nonsense. So it's an interesting aspect that that it's not being brought up at all in in the in the whole uh Chappelle affair.
3: I think that explains a lot of it but Also, there's this bizarre phenomenon in which the right has become the only political coalition that can take a joke, literally take a joke at your expense. Uh, And the left has not. Uh, The New York Times has a headline on this, which is absolutely uh, interesting. At least it's uh, it's illustrative, I think, of this phenomenon where it, it reads, quote, Netflix loses its glow as critics target the Chappelle special. For whom are they speaking? this declarative statement an objective assessment that the bloom is off Netflix's Rose. Somehow. Well, you gotta read, we got to read, we should
0: read part of the story well, also but by yeah, John Kohler. I mean, what, what,
3: what Netflix has done here is stood by its artists and its shareholders and is making gobs of money off this very highly watched special. Who's, who's annoyed at this save for a handful of people who read the New York times and think that their complaints should manifest in real world action all the time, always, and without exception.
0: Listen, so here's the article. This is in the New York Times, right, by John Koblin. It was looking like a great year for Netflix. It surpassed 200 million subscribers, won 44 Emmys, and gave the world Squid Game, a South Korean series that became a sensation. That's all changed. Because now it doesn't have 200 million subscribers, it didn't win 44 Emmys, and it didn't give the world Squid Game, apparently. No, none of that is true. Internally, the tech company that revolutionized Hollywood is now in an uproar as employees challenge the executives responsible for its success and accuse the streaming service of facilitating the spread of hate speech and perhaps inciting violence. At the center of the unrest is the much-anticipated special from Dave Chappelle, blah, blah, blah. In the show, Mr. Chappelle comments mockingly on transgender people and aligns himself with author J.K. Rowling as Team Turf, an acronym for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, a term used for a group of people who argue that a transgender woman's biological sex determines her gender and can't be changed. The Closer has thrust Netflix into difficult cultural debates. Generating the kind of news coverage that usually attends Facebook and Google. Several organizations, including GLAAD, the organization that monitors news media and entertainment companies for bias against the LGBTQ community, have criticized the special as transphobic. Some on Netflix staff have argued that it could incite harm against trans people. This week, the company briefly suspended three employees who attended a virtual meeting of executives without permission. A contingent of workers has planned a walkout for next week. The glow is off of Netflix. You know, it's so off of Netflix that it debuted this series Squid Game, which has been watched something like, I don't know, like 100 million people in the United States have watched one episode of Squid Game. Some crazy number of people. That just happened in the last month. Um, and, And, you know, so the glow is off John Copeland. The glow is off. You know, Hannah Gadsby, who will now sell her special to Hulu, which would be stupid enough to buy it. I mean, you know, because she's not funny. Um, the New York Times this is a this is an article that poses a glow. The glow is the glow of the New York Times' not writing an article about Netflix's internal contradictions. I mean, it's 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 astonishing. It's an astonishing thing. And here is what Reed Hastings, who uh, is the ch- uh, co-chief executive of Netflix, said uh, in a in a online chat with Netflix employees who said, uh, was Netflix making the wrong historical choice or in hate speech? And he wrote, to your macro question on being on the right side of history, we will always continue to reflect on the tensions between freedom and safety. I do believe that our commitment to artistic expression and pleasing our members is the right long-term choice for Netflix and that we are on the right side but only time will tell the core strategy mr hastings wrote is to please our members what <laughs> how dare he how dare he run a business hiring the most the most popular stand-up in the world at enormous expense to do whatever it is that he wants to do on the grounds that Dave Chappelle knows what's funnier, more knows better what's funny than Reed Hastings or Ted Sarandos or Hannah Gadsby.
3: That's quite a bit of the the problem that you identify here in all of comedy. I spent a lot of time interviewing comics for my book, which deals a little bit with this subject. Your and upcoming Dovetails, book, your book. upcoming forthcoming book coming out in the spring. Right, the rise of the new Puritans. Um, And it dovetails with some of the themes in an article in the magazine this month by David Zucker, quote, destroying comedy, which everybody should read um, that, you know, these progressives are raging against an industry that they don't like, that they don't patronize, that they don't participate in. They're talking about, you know, how this this particular medium should bend to their will. But they don't they don't command that that attention of this industry because they are not the core audience. And talking about Hannah Gatsby's special in particular, what the audiences really loved about her special, which had some funny moments, I actually laughed at a couple of moments, when she wants to be funny, she is funny. What her critics or rather her, her supporters really like about her act, though, is where she is deliberately, explicitly laborious, where she builds tension and refuses to release it, where she demands that you sit there and endure her rage and her pain. And that is what they like most about it. Not the laugh. They like the labor which is all, you know, all about the work, you have to do the work. And as long as it's work and it's hard and it stinks, then you're going to, you're, you're doing the appropriate penance for living in the abject conditions in which we live and reflecting on the, the state of affairs that is so immoral and injurious to the minorities and everybody else who's, who's, you know, oppressed. You can't have fun because that's the antithesis of the spiritual labor that you're supposed to engage right. in every moment of the day.
0: Christine, in the 1960s, the last, you know, genuinely revolutionary moment that we had before the present, you know, in which we are essentially being told that American society is in need of radical overhaul by, by, by its elites, very much like the 1960s. Uh, the critic Ellen Willis famously or notoriously wrote this mm-hmm. sentence, good writing is counter-revolutionary. By which she meant that good writing, meaning writing, you know, that 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 is uh, nuanced and flavored and complex and and, and uh, is able to sort of t- take in a multiplicity of of views and perspectives, is by definition bad for the revolution because the revolution needs to be propagandized, and I think we're kind. This is pretty much what is being said now about almost every cultural product that. Its purpose is to support the aims of the cultural revolution. And if it does not do so, or if it dares to criticize the cultural revolution, it is therefore evil and must be extirpated.
2: Yes. I think a a good companion piece for people to read uh, to this story about Chappelle is an interview that the Atlantic magazine did with the founder of the Babylon Bee. It's hilarious because he's very funny And they are trying to treat with all the moral seriousness that they feel every woke topic should be treated, jokes. And and they're like we don't understand why you find this funny. He's like, well, if I have to explain it to you, then you're not going to get it anyway. I mean, it's actually kind of an interesting back and forth. Again, the, the sort of the satire that they do is is quite funny. It comes at it from a conservative perspective, obviously, but they get a lot right about what's wrong with our with our popular culture right now. The other interesting thing I see developing though is uh, talk about elites. Roxanne Gay also took on David. Chappelle's special, and her argument was a little more interesting than just "oh, you know the the, the bloom is off the Netflix rose." She says she was really horrified that he defended uh, the homophobic remarks of Baby and Kevin Hart, and her conclusion wasn't that you know we need to just allow people to push the envelope and, and say sort of outrageous things, you know, both for laughs, but also because we're a free society with the First Amendment. Her response was, "Well, they're not really like normal people. They're not normal men and women. They're not like even you know. Chappelle doesn't really even speak for black people. He's a celebrity, like Rowling, right? Like Kevin uh, uh, Hart, like Dababy. They, you know, they 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 might suffer occasional professional consequences for saying stuff out of line, but they're celebrities. They're not like you and I. And her, it's we. It was weird to see her try to cordon them off because." That, what that says to me is that they're still very intent on policing the speech and behavior and language of non-celebrities. So I, that worried me because, you know, the J.K. Rowling's can weather a, a woke mob, but the rest of us really can't. Right. So that was and, concerning.
0: You know, um, the joke about baby in the special, baby being a, a rapper, is that baby was actually involved in the murder of some guy in Atlanta but that's apparently okay. It's just not okay for him to say anything that's hostile to exactly. gay people yeah. or, tra- or transgender people. But you don't hear anybody complaining that you're listening to Baby when he was involved in a murder as a teenager. I mean, at which, you know, again, it's it, we are in this kind of weird uh, place, you know, uh, where, yeah, where it's the favorite crime syndrome. You know, if you have a crime that you think needs to be prosecuted you don't care about the other crimes that may,
3: may be being committed. Um, like lo- murder. The way. <laughs> That's right? a big one. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we were talking offline about the, um, HBO show white Lotus, um, which all of us who were talking about it, John, I don't think you were part of that conversation, but all of us really enjoyed it. Thought it was quite interesting and, um, experimental and unique and painted a very nuanced picture of characters who were otherwise quite unlikable, almost to a person. Um, and the reason why it was so interesting is because it's subversively unwoke, meaning that it allows for moral ambiguity. There is a campaign, a crusade um, among these, you know, youngish media critic liberal types who uh, rage against moral ambiguity, particularly in the sort of, you know, cultural fair that a, a appeals to children because these are all overgrown adolescents anyway like video games and the sort of thing that can influence children because and this is a very moral moralistic sort of uh, a reversal of the conservative arguments from the 1990s that these morally ambiguous portrayals to which young people are subjected might lead them to believe that immorality is is uh, is acceptable and that these these behaviors are the sort of thing that you can do in the real world and we can't license that we can't influence them that way um it's condescending uh it's uh, naive and it just reeks of a moral panic a very familiar moral panic that was much more native to the right for most of our adult lives yeah i mean the the joke about that is um it is traditionally
1: or historically it's been the people on the left who bite back when uh critics on the right say <clears throat> look i think what what kids are watching and listening to and what all of us are are watching and engaging, listen that the the uh, content of media, um, if it's debased, it will debase us uh, in in the real world. It was the left that always said,
3: "Oh, come on, that you know, no one's going to be influenced by a game, no one's going to be influenced by a movie." But not always, and that's the thesis of, of my book is that it was the case that progressives were the moral policemen up to and until the sexual revolution in the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies, and this idea that flowered in the 1990s that self-actualization was a primary moral virtue. Um, that's when the conservative right began to, you know, become moral policemen. Otherwise they, it was, it was the progressive left that was milliarist, that was utopian that did believe that there was a, a perfect humanity that we could pursue and everything should be directed towards that purpose, including entertainment products.
0: So uh, let me uh, step back for a second and talk to you guys about our first sponsor today, Fast Growing Trees. It's fall. The best time to plant, which means now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. You can skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com and thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and deliver to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth come spring. Fall is planting season. Don't let anybody tell you different. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at FastGrowingTrees.com. Plus, it's 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee it means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now through November 30th, go to FastGrowingTrees.com for 15% off. That's 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary. FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary. Um, Noah, you're kind of head up about uh, the reaction to 90-year-old uh, Canadian over-actor uh, William Shatner uh, spending 11 minutes in the upper atmosphere.
3: Yeah, I mean – regular listeners of the podcast will know I'm sort of a weird space obsessive uh, and, and have nothing but good things to say about the, the private space race and have been saying them for quite some time. And we saw a very familiar reaction to William Shatner's uh, jaunt into suborbital space um, aboard a, uh, the, the, luxuriously appointed um, blue origins capsule that launches into space and launched Jeff Bezos into space in July. Um, Prince William of the UK said that this, you know, uh, sounded a very familiar note when he said that we should be, quote, trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next planet to go live. Uh, um, another quote, uh, really, it, it's, he said, it's really quite crucial to be focusing on this planet rather than giving up and heading out to space to try to think of solutions to the Hey, you
0: the know, future. Prince William uh, is
3: part of a family that has um a, a multi,
0: a billion dollar jewelry and antiques collection that they could auction off at sotheby's and give that money to some global warming conglomerate you know put your right. money where your um, mouth is mr sit there and do nothing and be a wax statue with your pretty they don't wife really and mean children like you know it doesn't matter what he means like what the hell has he ever done for humanity you know what the hell? You know it's like Prince William. Okay, well he shut is doing. Out. He like go, go he, do he something. Is, I know, I know. He fought in he Afghanistan. I'm is, sorry, he, that's not fair.
2: No, no, no. That's Harry. No, oh, that's he did Harry. A whole thing that's Harry. Was there, who's, yeah. even, who's bad. He did a he he's doing this big Earthshot Prize where they bring in people around the globe. I mean he he's environmental stuff is is kind of his. Charitable bailiwick. so I will say, you know, he is trying to do that, but but go on, Noah, because I agree with the yeah, because the it's not, I don't think it's
3: real. It's a fashionable luddism um, that is that has defined progressive discourse, and the arguments change, but at root is a level of status anxiety that is palpable as these people watch the prohibitive government monopoly over access to orbit wither before their eyes. Before before uh, Shatner, it was Jeff Bezos, and the arguments were from people like Congressman Mark Pocan, that people don't have clean drinking water, but billionaires can go into space. Or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said, "But I think people would rather have health care than watch an old man engage in an ego trip. Or Mark Miller, who was a former Justice Department spokesman, who said it was literally depressing watching the commercial space race flower, because in his day, you know, there was a government monopoly over access to space, and that was really inspiring. And then there was uh, and there was also a Washington Post essay which you know gives license to people who can who want to enjoy this thing by doing so by exploring it through the the lens of identity politics because Jeff Bezos gave Wally Funk An 82-year-old female aviator, a long-delayed trip into the outer atmosphere, which is worth celebrating even if the, quote, overzealous machismo of the guy who got her there isn't.
2: (laughs) See, they should have Um, put Betty White, not William Shatner, into orbit. Then it would have been much more. But
3: all of this is – and it's stupid. By the way – It's just dirt stupid because the technologies that are being developed here are going to deliver to you everything you want. It will give you the acts that the clean energy future that you want. It will give you the spectacular revenues that will produce for you the welfare state that you think we all should settle into and just you know slit our wrists and, and pass away quietly. Uh, that's the future that's going that is, that's going to be delivered to you by this. By this miracle, this technological miracle that has somehow become mundane. I mean, we're putting people on top of rockets and watching them lift off to space as though it's 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 without risk. It's profoundly. By the way, I want to I want to
0: make an argument in favor of what he did with William Shatner, who is you know from what I can tell, kind of a a, a a kind of a ludicrous blowhard as a human being. But that that's not that's not why I'm even bringing this up. If you read about the people who went into space exploration uh, in the 1980s and beyond, the people who went to work for NASA, the people who went and, you know, did stuff, um, they were inspired by Star Trek. This is no joke. Like, you know, we named a space shuttle after the ship on Star Trek. The Enterprise was named after the ship on Star Trek. And paying tribute to the fact That a very middling work of popular culture in the mid-60s had this incredibly long tail that has led to remarkable innovations and surprising uh, inspiration to people who have used their talents, abilities, and their ambitions to further the human exploration of the universe – I think is actually not just a publicity stunt that got, you know, that that looked fun, but actually all things considered was kind of a a, a noble gesture toward this And that's where the
3: And that's where the status anxiety comes from because this is a source of profound inspiration for millions that does not come from our collective will. That is not, you know, the the masses engaging in in things we just do together and we call government. It is a a very private uh, enterprise and it is one that is, uh, you know, inspiring on a level that I I don't think progressives like because it threatens their monopolies on cultural and economic power.
1: It doesn't come from our collective will, but I think, you know, I think the, the, the massive point that the critics of this miss is that a country and a system and an economic system, um, that produces these kind of massive ambitions and uh, realizes these kind of dreams is the only country and the only system that is also capable of solving the kinds of problems
0: that 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 they're focused on. Um, you don't get one without the okay, other. Okay, so here we have three guys, three billionaires, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Richard Branson, all of whom come from modest circumstances are the definition of self-made men like they are the self-made men of our time they came from nothing they are now worth billions in each case musk's maybe a little more ambiguous because of the extraordinarily large role that government subventions played in the creation of his product and it's you know and it's a uh, ridiculous stock price but in the case of Branson, in the case of Bezos, these are people who looked at the world and said, I can do anything if I set my mind to it. That is more inspiring than bartender Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez getting 15,000 people to vote for her in the Bronx. Impressive a feat, though, that may have been as she snuck around Joe Crowley and got herself elected to the Congress. Ah, uh, these are people who 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 look at the world and the universe and say, "There's a lot that can be done here. And having these kinds of role models, it was understood for most of Western civilization to be what people wrote epic poetry about. What did people write epic poetry about? voyagers journeyers the argo you know uh, you li- you know uh, odysseus um you know sir walter raleigh you know the, the gulliver uh <laughs> robinson crusoe go on and on and on the 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 people on earth who uh, who who went out to say we can exp- we can we can advance the boundaries of our knowledge and uh, and and in- enlarge the world that we live in are people that used to be celebrated. And Noah, you said just before we, we came on the air that um, this is a message that is directly in contradiction to the growing message of liberal progressivism. you want to sort of expand that out because it, it you know, because it, what, what you said, we,
3: actually, no, I had another point I was going to make. What, what, what did I say there? That was so what, brilliant. <laughs> what, what,
0: what you said was that uh, a world in which uh, one of the major political movements is dedicated to the idea that you need to make people oh. as comfortable as possible and sit and sit in as, in as much, you know, static comforts is a world of stasis and a world in which two, three generations down the road, there isn't going to be enough money to make everybody comfortable, because without these explosions of innovation, we do not grow. We, our economy doesn't grow. We don't advance, and we, 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 we um, fester
3: and rot. Right. Yeah, and the existence of any sort of economic inequality just, you know, pervades their their imaginations, and they can't see past it. Um, which is a very childish way of looking at this. I mean, back to the you know comedy talk. Uh, these people are children and act that way. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez said met Bezos' exploration with the following quote quote It's the exploitation of workers that finance this little jaunt into space, and for what? We did this sixty years ago with NASA and with the public. Yeah, but maybe you've missed the last decade in which NASA stopped doing this. I don't know where you were when NASA retired the space shuttle and outsourced America's capacity to achieve escape velocity to Russia at exorbitant expense. All of the industries and public sector entities that are responsible for getting material and men into Earth orbit have agreed upon the fact that this private industry which now uses you know, renewable booster vehicles, as though that's not an amazing technology that's somehow become mundane. They all agree that this is a better model, that it's now domestic. The industry is now domesticated once again, and that all these public sector contracts are being provided to private, empl- private enterprises to get into low Earth orbit. That is a better model. It's a more streamlined model. It's one that's far more inspiring than NASA not doing anything, sending, sending taking a decade and a half to send a, a, a robots to do exploration. Look, that's great. That's important work. It's scientific work. It's not really all that inspiring to send a rover to Mars. I'm sorry.
0: Again, I'm going to pull the age card and say that when I was, t- you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, after Apollo 11 landed on the moon and all of that, there were these launches – and nobody paid attention to them. once we once we fulfilled the mission that had been laid out in nineteen sixty one to bring to send a man to the moon and return him to earth, which was John F. Kennedy's promise. And it was done by the end of the decade. But nobody really knew what to do after that because we had we had created, we had sort of designed this, we had designed this mission. And we achieved it, but we were decades behind an understanding of what we might accomplish by being there, and our, you know, the science, let's say, oh. had not caught up to the technological advancement of the, this rocketry, this kind of rock, stunt rocketry, and and the national consensus in favor of NASA and space exploration collapsed in an astonishingly short amount of time.
3: Yeah, but why? Now, this is, and we've talked. I've talked about this show before, and it's a very good show. But Apple TVs for all mankind assumes uh, the premise that the space race would continue in perpetuity if the Soviet Union had beaten us to Mars. The underlying theory there is that competition is the reason why we we went into space to, into the moon in the first place, and competition, the absence of which, is why we stopped. Because there was nobody to compete with anymore. This, the private space race is predicated entirely on competition, right. intense commercial competition. And the only reason why it's happening with this kind of alacrity is because there is so much pressure in the marketplace to get there and to prove these concepts, to exploit all this activity that's already on spec. People are paying for all this stuff or suborbital travel, space leisure, uh, R&D in, in orbit. All this stuff is on spec. being Money is being exchanged in the hands right now in our lifetimes we will see profound innovation and a lot of exploitation of commercial enterprise in the upper atmosphere and in low earth orbit. And it's all due to commercial pressures in the marketplace and competition and progressive hate all that stuff.
0: And because these three guys in particular decided that they were going to use their vast fortunes to achieve the fantasy ambitions that they had sitting in their bedrooms as teenagers watching star trek that's the point that's the point and it didn't it, so what we watch does have well it can world have very good real world consequences right yeah i mean if you're watching you know if you're if you're watching um you know i don't know cricket porn god knows what you know god knows <laughs> where that's gonna get you um we are not merching that we phrase. are not I'm no just absolutely just not um and uh you know, the kinds of economic opportunities that might be provided uh, unknown and unknowable to break us out of this, um, you know, what appears to be a kind of innovation doldrums or this idea that we're sort of in a decadent place where we're not really creating anything new. Um, A a person who combines what I would call techno-optimism with a certain type of uh rueful knowledge uh, that uh, government can come in and gum up the works with bad policy and regulation is our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group. Um, one of the reasons I like his two newsletters, the thedctoday.com and dividendcafe.com so much is that he brings this layered perspective, uh, a believer in entrepreneurship and innovation and a worrier about the ways in which entrepreneurship and innovation are being interfered with and mucked about with by the regulatory state and are and are also um threatened by the rise of uh what might be called you know totalitarian capitalism in china and 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 other places uh go to the dividendcafe.com subscribe to his two newsletters um tonight i guess he will release his weekly dividendcafe.com newsletter which sort of gives you a kind of global perspective on the week's events the dctoday.com covers the markets and the and the gyrations of them on a daily basis uh these are uh, two of the best products out there from the bonson group the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry all right uh so you know as i said we're doing a show with no with nothing uh, you know we got we got no people sometimes say to us like how do we do this like and uh, honestly we're really sloppy we we like talk for 3 or 4 minutes before we go it's like what are we going to talk about i don't know i mean i guess we're going to we'll talk about covid
2: well the text thread is... the text thread is a, is a nice sort of churning yeah, that's true this discussion. is the most
3: dangerous place for a daily radio program to find itself, in which you have nothing to fill the next forty minutes, and you go, okay, well, this happened to me in my personal life. Let me talk to you about my yeah, wife. That's, that's bad. where things exactly, go real bad. Exactly.
0: Well, I will say, I will say that um, I'll do a little uh, history of the commentary podcast. So, Noah, I don't know, uh, five years ago, five or six years ago, it was like we should do a podcast. And I said I don't want to do a podcast. He was like, "No, we should do one." I was like, "I don't want to do one because you know they're 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 kind of amateurish. They don't sound that good." I I'm very concerned that commentary when the things that we produce, the writing we the magazine we produce, uh, is is done at the highest level of professionalism. You know that that is a the excellence with which we attempt to. Uh, achieve uh a combination of argument and literacy and uh, a good clean look and all of that very important and you know podcasts violate all of that and he pushed me he pushed me he pushed me and then finally i said okay as long as it doesn't cost anything we'll just we'll we'll, do, we'll buy some mics and we'll try it and then we'll just see what happens and um and here we are uh, five years and i don't know 700 shows later or something like that um and as you can see from the number of times I say "um," I'm right that we really don't have the highest level of professionalism when it comes to producing this, this, this podcast. Uh, I'm sorry about that.
3: I mean, plenty of podcasts don't even have sweepers, and we at least have uh, bumps in and out. So this is uh, this is as good as it gets, folks.
0: I guess so. I, that's a.
3: It's not as good as it gets. I I,
0: I refuse to accept that it's as. Uh, it's as it's as good as it gets. Um, I would just like to achieve, just for once, the astonishing ability that Charlie Cook has on the editors, of delivering a sort of four-minute address on a specific issue, in which he never says "um" or "you know" or "like." How
3: how how does he do that? Because he speaks. At a pace that I'm already frustrated. You- <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. You extirpate those little verbal, uh, you know, crutches from your uh, from yeah. Well, your, I don't uh, repertoire. Yeah. Of what you, I yeah, mean, uh, I'm from
0: about. a I'm from a I'm the fourth of four children. Uh, Abe, you're like the what are you the fifth or the sixth? Uh, Christine, you're one of three. Noah,
2: I'm a middle child. Right? Okay, yes. so.
0: Like I gotta I gotta talk fast just to get my, you know, I learned talk fast to get a word in edgewise, or you're just never gonna be be heard. Um, I've always been very impressed by people who who speak with careful, slow deliberation because it does suggest that they were raised in an atmosphere in which it mattered to others what they were saying rather than there being just a competition for airtime.
3: It's also authoritative gives
0: you an air of authority. I mean, one of the most astonishing things I ever witnessed in my life was the comedy, the sort of the comedy routine, the Laurel and Hardy routine of Alan Bloom and Saul Bellow uh, co-teaching at the University of Chicago. And I took several courses from them at the Committee on Social Thought. And Alan Bloom, uh, who was not yet famous as the author of The Closing of the American Mind, but was a famously charismatic professor and uh, and sort of... um, Leader of young men and young women, and you know, as a philosophical model and all of that. Uh, Bloom, I talk very fast, and and I stuttered, and he, did, and, and he and he talked like this all the time, like that. And so he was very nervous and jangly and jittery. And then there was Bellow, and so Bloom would sort of deliver a thing, and then Bellow, who was had already won a Nobel Prize, was the most famous writer in America. Very confidently and coolly, would sort of lean back and then deliver himself of some statement about. Rousseau's Emile or Machiavelli's uh, Mandragora or something like that, in which he would speak for like five minutes. And when he was finished, you would realize that he had delivered a perfectly conceived piece of prose in which he had made no grammatical errors. There, were, You could hear the commas and the semicolons, you could see the dashes. You could see the periods and the paragraphs just came out of his mouth naturally. Um, well, Bella would sometimes
1: uh, dictate his fiction. Uh, he, he, did, he did that. He also, he also wrote uh, by hand, right? Uh, when he wasn't dictating. But the the idea that you could dictate fiction is, <laughs> is um, evidence of this, you know, extraordinary facility. Yeah. It also, I think, probably showed up. In, in his fiction you
0: know in in the way that it was it was uh breezy yeah uh, in its conception absolutely um anyway so boy have we gone far afield and that's okay because it's a friday and it's the weekend and you're probably listening to this when you probably have something better to do so uh we will well listeners say they like when we do this I, on yeah, occasion anyway I, yeah. yeah i guess so um whatever whatever is. Is. it's just sort
2: of that <laughs> uh abe takes us to the existential rambling
0: <laughs> we are rambling uh i did i will make a recommendation i saw the last duel movie opening today uh set in 14th century france uh about a an accusation of rape uh with the surprising cast of matt damon as an um as a kind of illiterate nobleman, uh, military man who is uh, repeatedly over time humiliated by Adam Driver, who is a canny Machiavellian commoner uh, who sort of out him in terms of social ambition and and financial position and then takes aim at Damon's wife, leading to the titular last duel. Um it's really really good um it's long uh it's bloody and uh but it is a remarkable piece of filmmaking and i strongly recommend it if you are willing to go to a theater it's like if if a movie like this could be a hit i don't know how anything is a hit anymore particularly in the pandemic era but if a movie like this could be a hit they could make more of them about like adults and adult themes and people living as adults as opposed to in comic books and you know with superheroes not that I mind those movies I like them very much but but uh the kind of the drama is all but left uh the big screen this is a this is a historical epic of a kind of old-fashioned hue and and it it deserves our support if you are and you know a a broken down old man like me so uh, give it a shot and uh we will talk to you on Monday for Abe Christina Noah and John Podhoritz. keep the candle burning